<laughs> says they ground their teeth at him. That was an Old Testament way of they were super angry. They were gnashing their teeth. They were angry. All right, welcome to your church friends podcast. I am Chris. I'm Yurdik. And today we are joined with a very special guest, someone who both me and Murdoch have worked closely with as uh, our church does a lot of mission funding and mission work with Mr. Elmo Compton. Do not yep. let his first name scare you at all. It's not that Elmo. It is Elmo, the individual, not the puppet. Right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Like you said, my name is Elmo and my last name's Compton. So there's enough, there's enough there to balance somewhere in the middle we can find uh, you know, there's uh, something to balance out Elmo, but uh, yeah. So appreciate you guys. Excited to be here with you. Yeah, you have the 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 cuddly soft puppet first name, and then like the mean street of Compton last name. So I think yeah, that does balance thinking, like, out. A puppet from the streets. Like I don't know what's going on there, but yeah, I don't know what's going on. But somewhere <laughs> in the middle, we'll find something. Yeah, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> He's not on Sesame Street. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Elmo, tell us a little bit about the work you do because uh, we met you at our church. Uh, you came and spoke about some missionary work that you guys were doing about, I think, last year or the year before. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you guys came and you shared and it was a wonderful message, except for the incident. But we, won't, we don't have to talk about the incident. Oh, we definitely can unpack the incident. That's no problem. <laughs> we can definitely unpack the incident. Um, yeah. So my wife and I uh, have been uh, missionaries in Latin America for the last 10 years. We based out of Lima, Peru from 2013 uh, until right in the middle of COVID. And now we are uh, kind of growing our ministry, working in a couple of different places throughout Latin America. Um, planted a church when we were in Peru called Iglesia Mosaico, Mosaic Church, no connection to any other Mosaic Church that, uh, that is in the capital of Peru. Also had a bunch of fun opportunities to do all kinds of uh, outreach opportunities while we were in, uh, in Peru, uh, you know, from water wells to hosting medical mission teams to uh, we have a ministry called Legacy Center. That's a lot of fun. And so now we are, you know, now because COVID has changed some things, uh, we have kind of retooled a little bit the way that we are doing ministry. Uh, and we have some new things coming out soon. So if you do follow us in our ministry, or if you don't, check out elmoandcat.com. That's where we have some new stuff that's been coming out after the first year. So it'll be a lot of fun. That's awesome. So you guys were in Peru and now you're focusing somewhere else and, and getting all that going. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we still have a big focus on Peru, but there's been some, there've been some challenges that, that have presented themselves and God's opened up another door for us to augment some new ministries. So really excited to how those are developing and what that looks like um, moving forward. Awesome. So we brought you here today because we had asked you to be on the show and then like some communication issues happened. And then we reconnected again because you guys came back and it was like, yeah. oh, yeah, let's do this. And I was like, Shh, oh, cool, we're doing villains and you're you definitely in. Then we found the right villain we want to go over. And it was a really cool story with it. Uh, me and Murdoch were talking and as we looked at the season. You know, we are organized and structured. We had a planned set <laughs> list that ended up getting take some taken away, some added, you know, changed as we went along as through the season. And Saul was one of them that we thought about now to get away from the confusion. We did talk about King Saul from first Samuel, but this is Saul who turns into Paul. So right. we're going to look at him today. And me and Murdoch were like, yeah, we should cover that. That would be an interesting thing. 
and then me and you started messaging like what should we do and, and this and you're like I would like to do saw like that would be a cool one as a missionary to kind of go over yeah and and so I just thought like man that's that's God right there speaking and let's let's do it so this see, this episode might be a little different from the other ones where we really heavily focused on like the villainous thing of someone but this is a, a villain turned hero and I think this is a needed episode needed episode to kind of fill in I think that we should still focus on the fact Saul the villain dude was just murdering people straight up like sending people like hey boys go get them I'll hold your jackets you <laughs> like it was straight up mob status so no, right. I, I get what you're saying like turned hero but at the same time he definitely earned his rank on the list as far as this is straight up persecuting the first followers of Jesus going and, you know, having them body bagged. So, yeah, he's on the list. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I was, you know, spent some time this week in really in the first couple of chapters of Acts, kind of looking at that story that led up to the introduction of, of, of Saul into the narrative. Yeah, the dude was definitely a definitely a, a, a bad guy, you know, definitely a bad actor in that story. But it's incredible, you know, circling back. It's incredible how um, God used that to to really catalyst the the church and that. So yeah, absolutely, man. I'm excited to do this. It's gonna be a lot of fun. All right. Well, let's start there because we talked about a little bit of that with the Ananias and Sapphira story. Was it Ananias and Sapphira? No, it was Simon the Sorcerer. It was still the same episode, but gotcha. how it tied into the spreading of the church and everything, and it kind of led into all of that. Uh, yeah, that that's kind of the the start of it was there. So yeah, let's dig into it. Go ahead, Elmo. We're, we're all ears and we're listening to you. So, okay, before we really can get in and talk about Saul and who Saul of Tarsus was, you kind of need to, I think we need to lay like some, some real basic groundwork here. What allowed him to be the bad guy that he was, right? So it, real quickly from Acts, actually lays out for us the beginnings of, of the New Testament church. So the, the Gospels kind of give us the real fundamental stuff, talk about Jesus, talk about his, his his disciples, the miracles, who he was, his death, his resurrection. And then it picks up Acts with the new church. So we've got this group of people that are supposedly defeated, right? They're in the upper room, 120 folks. Jesus then reappears, strengthens, Pentecost happens, fire comes down, you know, these people speak in tongues. And then we see this incredible growth. We see this church go from 120 scared, confused, just running from, you know, what they, they were on the ropes, they thought they had lost, to now all of a sudden, a church that had, that had exploded. After Pentecost, we see thousands and thousands of people being added to this church. And it gets so big in chapter four, there are some concerns that, you know, the, the physical help wasn't being distributed the way it should have been distributed. And so later in chapter six, the apostles gather and they, they call the first round of, we really, we look at this, we model, we model deacons, church elders after what we see here in chapter six, the church is growing so fast that they need another level, another layer of leadership. And this is where, where Stephen comes into the mix. And Stephen is really the, in the scenario where, where we first see, uh, where we first see Saul. And I think that, you know, starting off, if we look at that chapter six, verses one, really through seven is really the thing that frustrated the Pharisees so much. And that's really what, what propelled Stephen to be, to be seized. And then we, we kind of see the first, the first instance really of, of Saul 
stepping in and being, you know, the jerk that he was. And uh, I was looking here at those first couple of verses. I'm just going to read that real quick. I'm in the ESV. In these days, some disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists, the Jews, right, that were that were not in Jerusalem, that had grown up in the Greek Greek speaking Jews, rose against the Hebrew because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And then we see that again in chapter four. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, "It's not right we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore." Brothers, let us pick out among you seven men, good repute, full of the spirit. It goes through how they will pick these men. And they, and they chose, I'm going to jump down here, verse 5, they chose Philip, Procurus, not Timon, and then they prayed and laid hands on him. And the God came to increase, the number of the disciples multiplied, and a great many of the priests became, uh, became obedient to the faith. And I think this, verse 7, is the beginning, really, of opening up the chapter to where Saul came in. And it says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here we have this new church that was completely just upending everything. It was so strongly permeating the culture that they were seeing priests from the Jewish faith converting over to the Christian faith. And that's where we, we see, we're stepping into verse 8, and then Stephen I'm so full of grace and power, right? That power we're talking about what we saw in Acts at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cretans and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and, and, and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So here is where we find the first appearing kind of on side stage of Saul coming into the scene. But verse 10 says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This whole thing, these wise men from, right, quote, wise men from all over the region had been brought in to dispute these new leaders, of which Stephen was one of them. And then verse 11, they claimed he was being blasphemous against Moses. And eventually, right, they, they brought, you know, they, 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 conspired against him. And finally, Stephen gives this incredible speech. And at the very end of that speech in verse seven, they decide they're going to stone him. And when they decided they're going to stone him, they took the bottom of chapter seven. And it says that they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is one of the, this is what now he's come off the side stage and he's on center stage. And it almost positions him, the scriptures almost positioned Saul as being one of the lead protagonists here, one of the lead guys against the movement. There's a lot of conjecture. We have to read it some a little bit between the lines here. But the fact that they laid their garments at his feet was you know, a symbol of him approving. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, and it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So probably he was there as a witness, as a physical witness. And this is the first real performance we see, if you will, of Saul against the church. And this begins his ravishing, verse 3, but Saul was ravishing the church. He wasn't just ravishing it on the debate stage, right? He wasn't just ravishing it in mean tweets or ugly infographics, right, that he was posting on Instagram. He was legitimately going house to house. And it says in verse three, 
he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison, right? So he was, he was going home to home and taking these, these men. And that was propelled, at least the scriptures lead us to, 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 to read, we read into these three chapters. We see that the, the church growth was answered by, by Paul. The enemy's answer to this exponential growth in the church was a group of men that was that Paul participated in, and maybe he even led this group of men that were that were the they went out and, and, and they physically militantly were attacking, not just intellectually or on the debate stage anymore. And that was a big shift uh, in what had been previously happening. But up until this point, except for obviously except for the crucifixion of Jesus, most of it had been debate stage stuff, arguments in the temple, debates, and they got heated. But this was a big shift. And, and Saul led that, that new endeavor, right? He led that new focus of going in and house to house and taking people and coming into prison and probably even many died through that process. And I think that really gives imagery there of like, imagine just a group of men coming to your house and dragging you off to prison, right? It's one thing as you're reading it and you're just like, oh, he went from house to house, dragged them off. It's like, hold on. Imagine a group of men coming and testing you on your faith and just dragging you away again, coming to the whole villainous of Saul and kind of what he's a part of. And as you said, like, it's kind of wasn't what was happening before. It's like, this is somewhat his and like the men that he have, that's their approach to, to handling it. Also, just listening to you give that that picture of the early church coming through, it just so much echoed like the spirit coming in and then the spirit working through Stephen, just so much echoed what was happening with Jesus. Like I just heard it so much that, you know, when Stephen was speaking, just like the spirit that was on him and the power that was coming out. And you had that with Jesus that everyone was amazed, like, where is this coming from? And then you had the opposition of the Pharisees to Jesus. And then you see the same thing here. Stephen's out there speaking. And then, you know, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees are coming. And whereas you have, you know, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and stuff sentence him to death. Now you have Saul giving the approval. So you just see the and Jesus said that, right? They, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Like you're not above me. And you see Saul is just instrumental in that persecution, even in, in new ways. And it was really interesting. I think that you probably could do a whole college semester on the Stephen's speech, right? It's the longest speech that we have, the longest sermon or talk that we have reported. And he wasn't defensive. Like he was on the offense, which is really interesting. So again, if you can imagine this what's going on they're in this debate arena and they've brought in their heavy hitters from outside from other places and this new young leadership has stepped up this speech Stephen's not on the he's not backing down which is really interesting I know we're not focusing on Stephen in this episode but you just see this these two forces being pitted against each other and the one knowing that this young buck who probably felt that he had something to, to prove Saul, right? This guy who was just rise, just coming up through the ranks, had been brought in, you know, had come in from the outside and was debating in this on this stage. Verse 51 is really interesting. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. And the circumcision was a pretty big thing, right, for these guys. And you always resist the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? <laughs> he says, you guys have always been the ones persecuting the prophets. You've always been the ones pushing back. And here you are continuing that again. And he puts his finger 
on apparently the absolute right button that ended up with him getting rocks thrown at him. But he was guided by the Holy Spirit. Verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged, enraged, right? So this villain who's standing there on the sidelines, he can't take it anymore. And, and again, we like to project some stuff on this, but, you know, did Saul snap his fingers and say, all right, guys, let's do this. Or did he just allow the crowd wanted to do and intervene? We don't know. But the terminology and the image here says they ground their teeth at him. That was an Old Testament way of they were super angry. They were gnashing their teeth. They were angry. But full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing. And so, we, again, we have these two images, right? We have Saul standing, verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is the beginning of, of, of Saul just absolutely ravishing the city. Well, I think it's interesting, though, that this is the character that, you know, we're going to bounce, which at the beginning, bounce back and forth between Saul in his beginnings and who he ended up being, who was the major voice of the New Testament guy we have. We look at these beginnings, you think, oh, man, who is this guy? Right. And how are we ever going to get anything good out of him? What I really like about what you're doing here, Elmo, with it all is uh, when I generally think about Saul, you know, and I think maybe for a lot of people, we go straight to chapter nine. Yeah. Yeah. And we totally forget seven, six, seven and eight. And they're so important and vital. And and even when you're unpacking everything, it's almost like if we were looking at this as a movie or a story. Saul's introduced and the way they introduce him is like, oh, that's the next bad guy. That's the next right. villain. And right. it's amazing how God does then twist that and use it for a better cause. But that verse in um, eight, where was it? Eight, three, where it said, but Saul began destroying the church and dragging people from the houses. And you and Murdoch were touching on that. That's a verse. And I think a lot of times, and we've discovered this a lot throughout the season, a lot of times we look at a verse and just take it as like that blip. It was a small thing that happened. We don't account for the time that actually took place. The, that that in that small verse could have been months, years. It right. was just time. And, and so Saul does have this track record of going in, taking people out. Like Murdoch said almost at the beginning, like mobster style. And what I really also enjoyed what you did there, Elmo, was the painting of everything before that was debate debate, debate, almost kind of where we're at today in America, right? We, yeah, we could face persecution, but it's never to the point where someone's coming in our house and dragging us out. It, right. Like you said, it was going to be a Twitter war or an Instagram back and forth or, you know, memes getting thrown out there. So th- I really enjoyed what you did there. I, I think for everyone listening, it's, it's an important part to not start in chapter nine, but go back and dig the roots in. Well, I think what we see in chapter, in chapter nine really is the climax of the story right? It's really the beginning of the, the beginning of the good part of the story. And, it, and I think that if we miss the special, I mean, all of Acts, but if we miss what happened, what transpired up to his conversion, then his conversion is not as sweet. It's, it's hard to savor how incredibly powerful those words in verse four and fall into the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We understand the weight of that. He wasn't Again, he wasn't just debating. He was on mission, a mission that, w- that had been going on for an undefined period of time, but actively, militantly, physically persecuting followers of Jesus. If we don't 
savor and understand and, and, and sit in uh, and understand what was going on in, in really verses chapter six, seven, and eight leading up to that. It's like in our lives, you know, when we give our testimony and we talk about what God saved us from and the sins that he helps us battle daily, man, that just makes that forgiveness and that salvation so much sweeter. If we converted to Christianity and we're, we weren't really saved from anything, we were just really good people and everything was great. Uh, it's not as it's not as powerful when God steps in and does some incredible things in our lives. When we understand this, I think it's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand kind of where this guy comes from. So segueing though into what we see in in chapter nine, verse number one is incredible, and, and it just speaks to what you were saying, Chris, about the the time frame for this. Verse one says of chapter nine, but still, I'm sorry, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So now he's, he's not just persecuting people in Jerusalem. Now he's expanding his, his dominance. He's going out into new places. And now apparently he needed permission to do that, right? And so now he's strategizing. It almost leads you to believe, at least at least the scripture, I read into the scripture that he had cleaned Jerusalem, right? Like we know that the believers scattered, and this is a response to that scattering. He had brought Jerusalem into the subject, right? And he had moved everybody out. And now he was going to go to these new cities and was asking for permission. And apparently in verse three, he got that permission. He got those letters. We don't know explicitly, but he went asking for them. And then verse three, he's on his way to Damascus. So now he's leveled, he's leveled up, right? He was this young punk, right? Who was on the sidelines. We brought him to the debate stage. That's all he was back in chapter six, right? He'd come in and he was, he was supposed to be debating these guys. And then he leveled up as a villain, as the guy who at least at very minimum permitted the stoning of Stephen. He approved of it. He let it happen. And if not, mandated it, sent and made people do it. Then now he's like, all right, I've got, and he's rising up through the ranks now. And now we've got Saul going and, and, and like pursuing people far. Like he's mobilized an army. He's mobilized, he's mobilized a group of people that can sustain him on these trips, these military trips. And this is where we see like the climax of the story. Just on that point, before you go further, when, you, yeah. when we're putting it in its place, so Saul just really being on the Sanhedrin, right, part of the ruling council there in Jerusalem, and just really being one of the leaders in Judaism, and I think that part of when they were stoning Stephen, they would probably stand justified, they're like, hey, look at Levitical law, we have a false prophet saying stuff, like we're supposed to stone him. And I can just imagine how Saul is getting raised up. And I can see it in the culture, almost that probably a lot of the Jews who were seeing what was going on, who were also villainizing the Christians, were just like, yeah, we got to support this guy, go out and get him. And just really seeing that, like, for them, Saul was the one that was going out and doing the good work and like squashing down this rebellion against uh, what Yahweh, the true God of Israel, right? Because they were seeing Jesus, that's not the Messiah, that's false, that's whatever. And when he's going and getting this approval and going out, and I can just imagine there being other young men who are like, yeah, I want to join up with him. Like, this isn't right. You know, you can see that just the 
the factions, so to speak, because they looked at Christianity as a, just a faction or a break off and something that was opposed to. And just even the when you're viewing the when he was viewing the scripture in that way and viewing Jesus in that way, just the full justification in man, I'm doing the work of the Lord. I need to go and squash this, right? Mm-hmm. And I just try and bring it into. I can see that happening just culturally in what happens when you have opposition like that. So I haven't unpacked this thought all the way, but it has lots of similarities between, I mean, even look at, look at, there are so many people who wage a religious war and they justify it. Uh, I mean, we look at it it, with other religions, right? There, there are segments and, and sects within religion, other religions that wage war within Islam, within Judaism, within even in Christianity's history where we've waged war and and in a militant way to to justify and we use scripture and we use our faith to justify and this was no you know Paul was no exception when you bring up a good point that he was uh, he was he thought that he was doing the right thing he honestly thought he was honoring Yahweh Jehovah by by these actions that's what he thought he was doing and it wasn't until what we see here this this encounter that we're getting ready to walk into that he realized he was mistaken that he wasn't paying attention, his eyes were closed to this new movement that was happening. I really like what you guys are, are doing in, in Elmo. I'm really enjoying actually sitting here listening to you unpack the scriptures of everything because it is putting it not necessarily in a new light for me, but reminding. Sometimes like you look at scripture mm-hmm. and you gloss through mm-hmm. and you're reading so fast. And we've, again, I, I think we've covered this a lot with this season, the unpacking. And I think Doug said it the best way on the serpent episode that the scripture a lot of times is like a slinky. So mm-hmm. it's compacted like this. Mm-hmm. And then when you take it, you see it expand and there's so much in there. Absolutely. And the one thing, and I, I guess I'm kind of, I jumped the gun with Saul's story because I want to get to the, the good part, the, <laughs> the, the turnaround, the beauty of the story. But I do like that you just see this. It is a transition or a complete change of this man who went from anger, rage, fury, Mm -hmm. Uh, breathing hatred when we go back to the uh, verse 57 of chapter 7 in acts and they covered their ears and yelled at the top of the voices and they all rushed him and dragged Mm -hmm. him out like stephen had just got done saying like look i see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of god and that just they covered their ears and they start yelling because they don't want to accept the truth and even what saul's life as he gives his testimony later you would hear the the term that you know, this verse four says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in other parts of it, it says, why are you kicking against the gold? Right. And that, that God was doing something. He was, he was kind of coming at him and through the stories of where you see him attacking people that I don't think this encounter was the first encounter where God was trying to get Saul's attention. Yeah. And he was constantly trying to work something in there too, where, you know, where you kick against the gold, that illustration of like kicking the fence, pushing, bucking against something. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was something in his heart that God was getting at. And he was just like, no, no, I'm going to hide that. I think we do that a lot too in our own lives. Oh, goodness. I'm just going to interject because kicking against the goads, we're in 2021. Most of us are city folk. What the heck is a goad? <laughs> right? I'm just because it's one of those cliches that gets you're kicking against the goad and it's like, all right, look, you're hurting animals. It's like a long stick with some pointed stuff on it. You're trying to get them moving along. So you're like, come on, you got to go this way. You got to go this way. And an animal kicking against the thing that you're trying to prod them in the right direction with kicking against the goad. So when you're seeing that God is trying to move Saul in a direction and he's kicking back on it, and obviously as an animal, you're kicking back on a sharp, like it, it pains you, but you're also like, 
nah, screw you. I don't want to go there. Get away from me with that thing. So uh, just whenever there's cliches and some old stuff, it's like, let's do some public service announcement. That's a goad. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, we even see that. Chris, you brought up a great, here in chapter seven at the bottom part where it says, you know, they stopped up their ears and they rushed and they were, that was, (laughs) what better picture? better illustration of that cliche that you're mentioning that thing that we're talking about you know the the fighting against what god was trying to do and yeah who knows what the what the encounters with with the gospel had been in saul's life prior to what we see really in verse i'm sorry in chapter seven prior to to saul entering the biblical side stage here but i'm sure that this had not been the first time because of his position and because of where he was, especially as a young man, he probably was fighting for, you know, that recognition and positioning. And, you know, he was learning some of the most learned men in that world. I'm sure it wasn't the first time that he'd heard the gospel presentation. And he, and, he, and his response was, was negative. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight this hard. How many times do we do that in our lives when we, we feel that God's telling us to do something? And our response is not just negative. It's not just apathy, but our response is, is we, we, we do the opposite <laughs> because we run from it. We, you know, we, we pull a, you know, we, 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 instead of going to Nineveh, right. We, we go the opposite place. We go the opposite way. And that's kind of what we see Saul doing here, right? Saul, instead of responding to the message that Stephen presented him chapter seven, instead of accepting what he saw, he succumbed to the, the pressure uh, and his learning and pushed against it even harder moving forward. And it wasn't until, you know, we skip over when we go from that first part of chapter eight, we mean, we skip over some really interesting stories. You mentioned Simon. Philip is a really cool story that we have a little clip of there in chapter eight. And all this is going on under the persecution of Saul. Saul is going house to house, dragging people out, sitting in the jail. Chapter nine shows us he had a murderous intent. We don't see any other illustrations of murder happening, but I'm certain that it happened. And that was his intent at the very least, the scriptures tell us. And then Philip actually pushing out because of that, that, that pressure that Saul was putting on the city. God actually used that to spread the gospel, to catalyst the gospel into places that it had never been, which is incredibly cool. Now, from our perspective, looking back, it's almost... Christianity, without that catalytic pressure of Saul, I'm God's provincial and he's sovereign and he would have done it another way. But that was an incredibly unique way for him to, to, to take the gospel and to send it. Even through Philip, he sent that. Later we see with the Ethiopian eunuch and we see with all these other people, he sent the gospel to incredible places because of that pressure that Saul was putting on the church in Jerusalem. And it almost, he was a better missionary before he was a missionary than after, like in the fact that he was getting the gospel to so many places. It's kind of a backwards way to look at it, but he was advancing the gospel even before he himself was advancing the gospel. Does that make sense? That just shows you that God can absolutely use anybody to accomplish his goals, can use any, uh, any scenario and then when we get into, again, we're going to jump right back, kind of jump into Acts chapter nine again. So, you know, he's Christians have left the city, intense pressure, and now he's going to this new place. 
and and now we have a one-on-one encounter with with Jesus and Saul. That's pretty unique. We don't see many of these scenarios, right? Where where Jesus actually interacts with somebody who's persecuted. I'm trying to think of another instance. Yeah, where I mean, obviously, when happened. he was alive and walking the earth before the ascension, he right. was all, you know, he was with everybody. But yeah, after the ascension, I'm thinking this was about it. Is it right? Yeah. And you know, that's incredible about God is the rhetorical questions that he asks or the questions he asks that he already knows the answers to it. I think back, I was just recently listened to the, the serpent episode and, and that question that, you know, the God asked Adam and Eve, why are you guys naked? What's going on? Who told you? Why are you guys doing this? What's going on? Kind of the same feel or the same, why are you doing this, man? Like he already knows what's in his heart, but he asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who, who are you? And it almost like he, he says, well, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the guy that you've been, you've been persecuting. And then in verse, I mean, chapter nine, verse six, he doesn't even pause. It was really interesting. Verse five, and says, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And without the verse doesn't give us any indication. There was a break here. He just says, but rise into the city and you'll be told what you are to do. There's not even a physical affirmation or a verbal affirmation from Saul. It went from, wait, who are you? To automatic obedience right out of the gate. And I think that's really interesting. And it didn't even have verse seven says the men who were traveling with him were speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. Saul rose on the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he couldn't see anything. He saw nothing. So I led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Can you imagine what that scenario was like? So we have this mob of murderous young men who are probably horseback mounted. I, in my mind, I envisioned this like super charged, angry group of men riding down the road into Damascus. And all of a sudden they just hit this wall of God's presence. And it was so powerful and so overwhelming and confusing. Everybody around Saul, right? He's at the tip of the spear leading this charge of men going in. He falls to the ground and begins to speak to something that they don't even see or hear. And then he goes blind. What's going on? And, and how in just two sentences changes the course of Christianity, of not only this man's life, the men and women around him. And we feel those reverbs to today through those, through those scenarios. Another person I think is, is worth some of our time is, is this guy that God uses, the Ananias. Yeah. And guy. different Ananias, not the one that got struck down in the other episode. That's right. So That's right. There's popular names even back then. So here's another right. disciple named Ananias. <laughs> right. You um, know what I what I like what you're doing, Elmo, with all of this is it's really helping me, someone who grew up in church, look at this portion of scripture in a in a different way. Cause I instantly I think back as a kid coloring, you know, these images, yeah, a lot right. of these, these villains, it's funny. I go back to like the kid part of my brain yeah. when growing up in church and like coloring in Sunday school, the pictures. And with this one right here, where like Jesus is talking the voice and, you know, it's always Saul, Paul fell off the horse and he's on the ground and there's like two dudes by him. And so in my head, then when I read the men traveling with him, it's, it's just like two dudes only we're going with them, but you're Pain. like, yeah, yeah, you're painting this really great picture of what it really was, was 
it wasn't two dudes with Paul. It was a gang. It was almost like, in a sense, an army of people going out to do this task of, of taking people out of their homes in Damascus. And it, it was a, it's a lot different than what, I guess, the traditional side of my brain has always remembered because of that child's coloring page. And think about it. Who was Paul Saul, excuse me, going to attack, pull out of, the, out of their homes? Ananias. Yeah. <laughs> so like this brother was probably on the short list, right? He was probably on the hit list. If he was the guy that God gave the task to, to help disciple and help like begin the process of conversion into, into Christianity for Saul, I would think we're safe by saying that Ananias was probably on that scroll that Saul had stuck in his bag of men and women that he wanted to go pursue. We don't know. That's conjecture. That's again, when we use our, your friend Doug's Illinois, when we start stretching out that slinky and start looking at the spaces between there, probably. Right. But he says, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord gave him a vision and he actually gives him more instruction than we see that he gave Saul, which is really interesting. It says, rise, go to the street, call straight. And then Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. Can you imagine what that was like, can you imagine, go to this place and he's going to come and you lay hands on him so he can get his sight back. <laughs> it's just like, listen, verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests. That's going back up to what we see in the first part uh, of the chapter. He got those letters from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias at first is like, um, no, he didn't say no, but he's like, are you sure? Yeah, you, you must be mistaken. This is the guy that's going to arrest us all. Sorry to interrupt, but it's me, Remy. So a couple of weeks ago, I was playing at recess when a boy ran by and kicked the sand in my eyes. The pain was so bad, I couldn't see a thing. After three days of pain, not being able to see my friend told me I should go to healing hands therapy I saw a doctor in Ananias, and with a simple touch of my eyes, I was better. I could see again with no problems. Healing hands therapy was amazing, and it took care of me from the moment I got there to the moment I left. In fact, they even fed me some food after the treatment and said it was to help give me strength. Healing hands therapy is the best and located on Damascus Road, directly adjacent to the beef grizzle meal. Try them today and use the promo code REMI, YCF2021, to receive a discount and free 60-minute massage. Now back to the show. Yeah, you remember, God, I don't know if you got this news flash, I don't know if you read your, you know, your, 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 your news summary this morning, but he recently just got new permission to come here and be a jerk to us. So are you sure? The Lord responded in verse 15, Go. For he is a chosen Israel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is a little bit of foreshadowing going on here, too, because up until this point, we remember that the gospel was almost exclusively, really exclusively engineered toward, towards Jewish people and people of Jewish descent. And so when God's talking to Ananias, he kind of foreshadows what, what's coming down the road that, that happens through Paul later. So he first mentions Gentiles. Go for his chosen Israel mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, where I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And it's also interesting to note that looking at verse 16, how much suffering Saul caused 
And then looking throughout his ministry, he also was the recipient of a lot of that. Like he stepped on the side and he was the target of a lot of intense persecution and intense suffering. You know, obviously as believers, we don't believe in karma, but man, <laughs> it's, uh, it came back on him. But then we see this guy, this, this guy Ananias being faithful and being obedient to what God asked him to do. And what's really, I mean, there's a lot we can unpack here, but Ananias, he questioned God in that he said, hey, listen, I, I want to walk into this thing, eyes wide open. And what you're asking me to do is you want me to go to this guy who has permission to bind us and to take us back and put us in jail. Is that what you want me to do? Verse 15, God reaffirms that. He says, he says, go, because I've chosen him to be a vessel. And this guy, Ananias, just pops into the story and, and does it. When everybody else is scared, look how he addresses him in verse 17. So Ananias departed, entered in the house. He did what he was supposed to do. And he laid his hands on him, on Saul. He says, brother Saul, wait a second. What? What? I mean, we haven't seen any indication thus far of Saul saying that he would, he's been told to do something, but he hasn't verbally, we don't see any written things where he says, yeah, sure. Okay. Sign me up. I'm good. Count me in. And Ananias walks in here just purely off of what God had told him. Go do this. You got it. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he began to sight and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So this guy went again from being the biggest antagonist, the biggest attacker of Christianity to now being in this new birth scenario, this infancy scenario. But then quickly he transitions from someone who, you know, was against the church to someone who was for the church. And then in verse 20, it says, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Imagine what that conversation was like, those meals. <laughs> hey, brother, so-and-so, I want you to come over for dinner. Bring your family. Oh, yeah, who's going to be there? This dude named Saul. <laughs> Wait, what? You want me to do what? But in verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. So just three chapters before, what he labeled as blasphemy and what he killed a man for, or at least approved of killing a man for, now he's doing. He's in the synagogue, the same setting, the same scenario, saying the same things in verse 21. And all who heard him were amazed, saying, they, everybody pay attention what I'm pointing out. Everybody else was seeing too. Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for that purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confound the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 22, when it says he increased in strength, it makes me think that that interaction he had on the road coming into Damascus was pretty significant. It wasn't just a kind of what you said, the coloring sheet, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that, man, listen, we love, I'm, I'm so thankful for all of the ways that we teach the scripture to kids. I'm so thankful that we have traditions of teaching the Bible to our children. However, we grow up sometimes with this imagery of the, the light-skinned, curly, light brown hair, blue-eyed Jesus holding a sheep, a lamb. And, you know, I just don't know that that's the imagery that the Bible is a lot more 
savage than that. <laughs> the, the, what happens here? He said he stayed some time, sometime, some days with disciples. He had to recuperate from physically from that interaction. wasn't um, It wasn't easy street for him. It wasn't easy. What happened when God comes into the scenario? What I envision in my mind is literally, you know, he didn't just like faint and fall off of his horse or like fall onto the ground. I think that was a violent intercession. I think that was difficult. I think he, I think he faced force. I think Jesus stepped in with power and it was overwhelming what happened. But then as he's recovering, he comes out of that scenario and he says, and increased in strength and confounded the Jews. Again, chapter nine, let's look back at the beginning. But Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's verse one. And verse 23, and many days had passed. I'm sorry, but many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates. And then he ends up escaping from his ex, what's the word? <laughs> the, his ex- Conspirators. Conspirators, thank you. Uh, I can only think of it in Spanish. And, uh, and he ends up having to leave the city in a basket because he's running from the people. So literally in 24 verses, we don't know exactly how much time passed here, but in 24 verses, Saul went from with murderous intent to fleeing his own attempt on his life. Again, this is far, 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 far from those pastel colors in Sunday school. I think Chris and I have talked before about maybe doing a series on correcting Sunday school or something similar to that, uh, you know, or filling in the blanks there and different things. Cause just as you go through, I mean, I, I just hear it from anybody who begins to actually read the Bible for themselves. They go, I thought that I knew that, but there's a lot mm. more. And even with Jesus, I mean, it's so you hear people like Jesus was kind of like savage sometimes, but yeah, with what's going on here with him, it's real life. And that's what, how we've been unpacking and Chris keeps bringing up this been cool is that we're unpacking into like, it's real life. It's not just, oh, 24 verses on a page. Like dude was full on, came in, he was about to drag them out. And like you said, the impact on that. And when it says that, when you're saying that the impact and how weak he had become from it, because it even says that after the scales, it says that he took some food and regained his strength. So for those days that he was just blind, you got to figure, man, here's this guy who's been persecuting and he's been fully in I'm doing what God wants me to do and everything else. And he's a religious guy. So I'm reading into it a bit, but it's like you have that interaction and there's obviously a sign of God in your life that's happening. I would think that like, oh, I'm not being able to eat either just like I can't or I'm fasting or something happening, you know, because it brings up food or just like the weakness that comes from that. Again, I'm reading into it a little bit, but just, yeah, where it had brought him, it was completely reality shaking to him. Yep. And yeah, just everything that he thought that was, he's discovering it's not that at all. In fact, it's the opposite. And we've talked a little bit about just conversion stories and like our testimonies and whatnot. And this to me can seem like a really, oh man, that's a crazy miraculous one. Like that kind of thing, like that happened to Saul. And we can look at that like, well, that happened to Saul. But when I look at the pieces that's there of Jesus coming in and just full on stopping somebody where they're at and going, you're blind to what the reality is. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to stop the path that you're going down. I'm going to show you that you're blind, bringing you to a point of weakness. Because like, I see this where people are really struggling and wrestling when God is like really at that point of impact. 
And like all of a sudden, like, oh, I don't find joy in the same things. I'm feeling kind of depressed in ways or like, I don't know what to do. And like, there's some turmoil. You brought that up, that turmoil that goes on. But I think that what happens, and you talked about it with Ananias, is that while God is working in one person's life to reveal himself, I think that he's also working in a disciple's life to come in and bring the gospel or follow up, right? Whether planting that seed or watering that seed or being there for that harvest that comes. And you pointed out a really big thing is that Ananias, he's like, I'm scared. This is like, he's the enemy and I'm scared to do this, but still being obedient to do it. And I wonder today in a world of, like we said, it's Twitter wars and it's different things, at least in America and a lot of the Western world, a lot of the world, it's not Twitter wars, it's a a sword or a gun, but the fear of us to go to the person who we is persecuting us so much and go, oh yeah, God's been working in their life and I need to go follow up on that and be there as the person who can disciple them. Mm -hmm. Like I'm... I'm just going to throw it out there just based on experience and everything else, you know, observation and everything is that I think that there's a lot of people who we can view as pretty big villains against Christianity and God is laying it on our, you know, as the church to say, you need to go and talk to that person. Don't be scared about what they're doing. Like for all the talk and all the whatever, all the persecution, go and show up and be like, hey, you're blind. But how did he show up? He showed up to uh, Saul and said, hey, brother Saul, Lord appeared to you on the road. He sent me. And for us to take the assumption that God is patient and he's wanting everyone to turn to repentance and he's hounding down everybody with the gospel. And for us to show up and be like, hey, brother, sister, like, I know that God's been working on you. Like, I'm here I, and I know about it, too. And you brought up even our own personal testimony. It's like, man, as Christians, so much we can default into just how people know us since Christ. But to be able to come in with a testimony, I'm like, dude. Where you're at, like, I was a worse sinner than that. I struggled with crazier things than that. And God will pair us up with people to where, like, they, I'm just seeing Saul's conversion. It can seem super miraculous. And, man, flash a light, thrown off a horse. But, like, that's what conversion is. God stops us, says, hey, pay attention. And then he brings somebody along to help disciple us and help bring us into walking in the new way. For as miraculous as it sounds, I'm also seeing that, like, man, I look at what God did in my life. And, yeah different things but follow the same format right i I like the the imagery too because we do talk about like this is real the the real happening behind what's happening and uh when we kind of looked at the dragon this in in the last episode before the break the imagery was this spiritual what was happening behind the scenes and everything and what saul's life this conversion here this whole change the impact that jesus comes in right he he presents himself and it just wrecks his whole being and the blinding to where I look at that as Saul was so stuck in seeing things only one way that God literally had to shut his eyes and reopen them so he could see things in a whole new way. And, and again, that's a physical thing, but it's also that spiritual aspect of, of, of our own blindness, that we're spiritually blind before we encounter Christ. And we think we're seeing the world the way it should be, and we think we're doing the right things, and we think we're going about life in the right way, pursuing either success, fame, money, happiness, whatever the pursuit is, especially here in America, that American dream. And we think that's the right way of doing things. And God's saying, I need to remove the blindness from you because without that, you can't see exactly the way I want you to see. I really do like this story, that part where Saul's life does get wrecked because 
that's what Jesus does when he comes into our lives. He shakes everything up where we look at everything we were to everything we are now. And it's just like, that's not who I am. And it's not who I am anymore. And there is this complete 180. And Ananias is such a cool dude. I want to touch on him. And I know this episode isn't about him, but we've all talked about him. I I really love Ananias in this portion. The whole like, uh, but God, do you not know who this dude is? (laughs) Is a great part of the story. And my translation in the NIV, the go has an exclamation mark. Mm. So I read that as if I were talking to my kids and I'm like, go do this. And can you had a dad voice attached to it? Yeah. It's like (laughs) the the voice change, right? Like uh, I could be, uh, Hey, can you come get, get this for me? And, or go give this to your sister over there and, and read like, why you want me to go do this? I'm sitting on my iPad, go like the voice changes. Right. (laughs) And then it's like their eyes change the whole, they're listening way better at this point. Yesterday, I'm helping my son do homework and cats with the baby in the other room. We have a little apartment. It's not very big. And, and you know, she has her Air, AirPods in and she's doing her thing and listening to, you know, whatever. And baby's like taking a nap. And, and I was telling Cinco to do something and, and he wasn't listening. And I went, son, now. And like the dad voice. And mom walked out and she was like, everything okay? <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> cut through. It cut through like whatever she was hanging, whatever she was doing. And she noticed like there was a, a dad voice change. So she came out to make sure like, hey, do you need any help? Everything's OK. You're good. You know, like and that's what I see in that that go what you're talking about mm-hmm. and, and what you pointed on to in First Timothy chapter one, verse 12, Paul's recounting some of this later. And he says, I think him who has given me strength. Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he judged me faithful according to his service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor. I love the way that it says this. And I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. The thing is, we are, as we're kind of winding down, looking at the story of, of Saul. So many times I've been in conversations with people and when I talk about how there's a creator and that creator designed a specific plan for your life. And that specific plan is a plan for good, not a plan for evil. And that plan includes having a relationship with himself. And I get people who push back and they say, no, but listen, if your God is as big and as good as he says he is, he wants nothing to do with me. Your God is as good as he says he is. If you say he is, he, why would he want anything to do with me? And this reminds me that although Saul was a complete jerk to the kingdom, right? He was an insolent opponent. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He, he persecuted the church in the most vivid, documented way that we have in the scripture, at least New Testament. And it was incredible. But he says, I received mercy. And what I always go back to is God wants to establish a relationship. And if that requires mercy, every instance, it requires mercy. He's interested in giving us mercy, extending grace as he's accepting us. And then he continues in verse 15 and says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And this, this prideful man that was once Saul. Now, many years later, in this letter to one of his 
proteges, right? Timothy is saying, don't forget, I was this chief jerk, but God saved me. And I think he's, when he's talking to Timothy, he's helping recenter on the mission. You know, we are called to, to bring that reconciliation to the world. And he received mercy from God. And I love going back to the story, especially on the mission field, especially when I'm talking to people who are far from, from Jesus, who don't have any church background or, or, or have never been exposed to Christianity. I love talking to them and using this story of, of Saul. Saying that it doesn't matter what your past was. And this is documented that he killed Christians, but yet God gave him mercy and allowed him to play a predominant role in the advancement of the gospel. And even before, and again, I like to come back to this, even before his own personal con- conversion, God used him and his opposition to advance the kingdom and advance the gospel, which blows my mind every time I sit and think about that. And even when we are acting the fool, God still leverages what we're doing to advance his, his kingdom, his, his good. And so I just love that. I love that part of the story. And going back to Ananias, Barnabas probably, though, takes the cake on the guy who, because he was the one. So Ananias helped him initially. Then he passes the baton off to Barnabas. And Barnabas is really the guy that that we can that we can credit a lot of Saul's early years to verse 27 of Acts 9 but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to them so Barnabas is telling this story Saul's not telling the story Barnabas because well, they weren't believing Saul because they were like hey Saul, <laughs> Saul got there and they're like nah we know yeah, no. that he was uh, trying to kill us like, yeah, this is some Trojan horse stuff. He's coming in. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. So like Ananias was key. But even even as we're building on that and what you boys have already talked about, how Mary, you said a minute ago that, uh, you know, as God's working in our lives, pursuing conversion, he's also simultaneously working in another disciple's life. Uh, and he pairs us together. And, and, and many times those we have different stages in life where he brings people in to our life to help us develop and to grow. And this section here from verse 26 through verse 31 is intense. And just, just how he then begins to transition from, from ultimate villain. Uh, I mean, this is who everybody, everybody in the whole region was scared of this guy. And this guy was the one that was, I mean, there were orphans running around telling the story of how this guy came into their house and took my mom and dad away, right? There were brothers and sisters and moms and dads workplaces there were empty chairs at dinner time this had repercussions through the whole region and people who he had never met were afraid of him verse 26 and they were all afraid of him they did not believe he was a disciple they didn't believe him but this salvation this reconciliation story is one that gives me hope it gives me hope because if god can use this guy well maybe maybe he can use me Maybe he can use me and my imperfection and my, with all my issues. If he chooses a guy like Saul, well, then maybe, maybe there's hope for guys like me. And I love this story. The redemption in it is, man, Netflix doesn't hold a candle to this redemption story. And verse 31 is so key. Is so key. Verse 31 of Acts 9. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and he, and was being built up. So the church continued. The church kept going. In spite of the enemy's biggest, strongest, 
seeming, again, they had just, Satan thought he'd won when he put Jesus on the cross and they preemptively celebrated. And then plot twist, Jesus comes back. <laughs> and then when he goes away and Jesus goes to heaven and only got 120 of them left, they're in an upper room. We're good to go. Church begins to grow. Satan brings in a guy named Saul and all his, what he represented and tries to squash the church to get, again, I know through all that whole story that we've just walked through, verse 31 kind of brings us back down, kind of levels us out again. The church throughout all of the region, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, had peace and was being built up, was, was being, was growing, was continuing, was advancing. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, it multiplied. And I love that, how the story starts with the church exploding. The answer of the, of the enemy is, is a guy like Saul. And then he has an encounter with Jesus. Everything changes. But through all of that, through murder, through, through military advances, through all of these, the, this strategy that the enemy threw with the church, the church multiplied. And I love how that's the ending, if you will, of that saga, of that drama. And, and, and it kind of steps off of Paul for a while. Paul goes into, uh, into this learning season and the season of, of learning and we talk about Peter for a while and we talk about, and then Paul kind of comes back onto, comes back onto the scene a little bit later uh, as he kind of continues out the rest of the book of Acts. And it's just incredible how God brings that restoration to the story uh, and how we can, we can know, we can trust that that restoration is what he wants in our lives, in our hearts. You know, I, I use this when I talk to, to families. You know, when families come to me and I was sharing before we started recording, recording a little bit about one of the ministries we're working with and just how, how challenging it is to recover from sin when sin is in the house and when the, the consequences from sin are incredible. But this is a passage that I've been going back to recently and go in spite of all of that, there is comfort of the Holy Spirit and God has a plan for the church to grow, for the church to multiply. And we can have comfort in the fact that God is going to be able to overcome all of the challenges that are brought to us and overcome all of the challenges that the enemy throws at us because he has a plan for the church to continue to grow. And here we are almost 2000 years later, not quite, but nearly talking about this guy and his story. And it's just incredible. I love this story of redemption. It's one of the coolest stories of redemption ever because it's one of the most dramatic, but it's also one of the ones that Jesus leveraged in a very public way. I love how God leverages, leverages Paul. And then again, as we continue through the next couple of chapters, he's kind of in a season of learning, a season of discipleship. Barnabas takes him in, he learns, and then he comes back on the scene a little bit later. We get to see Peter do his thing and next couple of chapters and get to see you know, other, other players, other elements in it. And then now Saul comes in later as a completely reformed, changed man that's ready to advance the kingdom in that, with that same passion that God had given him innately the same passion he was using to pursue the church now he's using that same passion to advance the church which is super cool yeah i really like the story i really really thought we were going to spend a lot of time on paul <laughs> not on saul and so i'm so glad that you actually created this uh this great way of taking his first half of his life and or his life without christ and breathing it out slowly so that it, it has time for everyone to just really focus in and look at the one thing that I always pick up with Paul when you look at his previous life was rage, anger, furious. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the, the position of Paul's life afterwards in every letter. I'm not 100% sure on this, but I'm 
pretty sure every single one starts off with grace and peace and then ends with grace and peace. And it just has to tell you what God can do in our lives, that we can be so filled with this rage, anger, whatever murderous threats that like Saul was, and then change to this life of grace and peace and grace and peace. And not so much always extending the grace and peace outward, but receiving it inward. And, and that's what I like about this story, this kind of transitions. But man, Elmo, this was this was super great. Well, I'm glad. Man. I've had a lot of fun refreshing myself on uh, Saul's early years. It gave me an opportunity to kind of dig in for you know another time into the early parts of his life. And I've really enjoyed my time with the word, getting kind of talking about this. And thank you boys for the opportunity to come in and, and talk and hang out. Such good stuff, man. Just when you're talking about the early part of his life, and you, we've just brought up so often how this is a real story, real guy, you know, and everything, and how you were saying whether he was persecuting, God was in control of it, and then, you know, just how God uses everything. And I just wanted to end kind of my thing with it, and I kind of putting some of the intro at the end of it when looking at Saul, just because when we're looking at conversion, and we've all We've all come to the point of like scales falling off of our eyes. Like, whoa, Jesus is the Messiah. This is who I submit to and come to it. Who we are and what God has allowed us to go through in our life. He uses all of it and like there's purposes to it. And when I did some study on just like the earlier life of Saul, right? Where he's introduced as Saul of Tarsus. Mm -hmm. And you look at Tarsus and it's like, man, that was a city that was one of the one of the last rulers of Nineveh under the Assyrians was like I I put that spot and I I established mm -hmm. that city. So you have Nineveh, which we see from Jonah is just like bad city. You got the Assyrians there, and you've got that. So it's established by Assyria. Then you have the Persians coming in. Then you have Alexander the Great. Then you have Mark Antony coming in. So it just has all of that going on, and it's one it's on a trade route from east to west mm -hmm. from like Asia coming in. But it's like, it's a super pagan place. And that's what Paul grew up around was just seeing all of this. And it's just like, it's not like, oh, they just weren't Jewish. It's like, no, full-blown pagan ritual practices. It's in the streets. It's in the everywhere. But then you have him being a Benjamite and a Pharisee of Pharisees and his raising up through that. So you can just imagine being like a Jew of Jews in a city like that, surrounded by that, and what your view of the Gentile nations is. And then the pride that you have in being a Jew and just like all of the, you know, obviously he stuck to it because it's like, hey, I'm a Benjamite. I'm a all this. I kept all the laws. I went with it. That's his childhood. And you said like you, you touched on it, that there was the foreshadowing of, hey, he's going to go and take this gospel to the Gentiles. And it's like you I can only imagine just even knowing Jewish law is that he didn't think too highly of the Gentiles and he grew up around it and he just saw the differences between like a godly life and that. But yet he was so familiar with it. But he was also so familiar with Judaism. And like, again, from his childhood and his upbringing coming up, and then the conversion and just God weaving all of that together, his knowledge of the scriptures, so much of what he wrote in the New Testament came from his knowledge of the Old Testament and being able to say, in light of the Messiah, this is how we view this thing. And then even coming into wherever he went in on his journeys, he was always saying, hey, can we gather up some money because the church in Jerusalem is persecuted? And he was part of establishing that persecution. And it was just so close to his heart that he was like, hey, you know what? In everything, we need to remember them. And it's just from everything from his upbringing to his own persecution of the church to everything. And just you see how God weaves it all in to then 
he is equipped to do the thing that God has set before him. And even as it says, like, hey, he's going to suffer for this thing and it's going to come. And I just look at my life and I can look at everything that I went through previously and anything regarding to experience or education or relationship or whatever. And if you allow God in, it's like he'll use all of it. And it's just a super cool thing that when I see the conversion of Saul, it's not just as we've seen chapter nine, but it's what came before and it's what even came before before because he was uniquely set up to do what he did, just like Peter was equipped to do what he did, you know, just like James is doing what he did. And just like each of us, I mean, the work that you're doing on the missionary field and what you're doing is like, I would not be able to have that impact in that way and do what you're doing. But you are, and I am where I am. And it's just the more that we can open up to God. And just, I really want to touch on that, how you said that an impactful thing is that God was using Saul even when he was persecuting to accomplish his purposes, is to really realize that, man, God's been in control of all of it. If you're looking at coming to Christ, like, yeah, I've been forgiven for so much. Mercy has come upon me, but it's all being used. Cool stuff Um, to me. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, that's so much good stuff, man. (laughs) The one thing I wanted to, I know we're like way over time, but one thing I wanted to close (laughs) on, one to close with was, the, the period kind of between chapter nine, verse 30, it says that they sent, they sent Paul, the believers, when he first was introduced with, by Barnabas, they sent him to Tarshish. They sent him home. They got him out of the Jewish controlled region and sent him back, back home. And if we're going to jump forward to chapter 11, verse 19, it says, now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen, again, what you're saying, how Saul instigated and fueled and enabled that persecution. They had traveled as far as Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists, not Jews that grew up other places, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And when we jump down, it says, verse 25, and Barnabas went to Tarshish looking for Saul. And that right there, Barnabas is a freaking rock star. Like they had kind of banished Saul a little bit. And I think part of it was because and again, just stretching that slinky out a little bit and looking between, it probably was for his safety. This was a, a growth season for him. Chapters nine and 10 kind of walk us through Peter and, and, and how God is moving the gospel from Jew only to Gentile. And, and that's all going on. And verse 26, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So Barnabas is the guy that goes and finds Saul and brings him back into the fight, re-engages him on the other end. And boys, I want to encourage you to something. Be Barnabas. Be that guy. You know, God has put us in, the, in this world. How many of us know someone, man, that has gone through something and they're just not, maybe, you know, they're in the season of growth and they just need somebody to come alongside them and go, hey, it's your time. Let's go. Come on. And I envision that conversation. Barnabas walking in and going, Saul, come on, let's go. And then later they, they go back to Antioch. And then in verse 30, the church is sending their, you know, the prophets are talking and the, the leaders are talking verse 30. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And now we've got these two boys who their stories start out. Barnabas is like the initial discipler for Saul, orienting him to the Christian community. And he's the guy that goes and grabs him from Tarshish and brings him back and re-engages him in the fight. And I just love how that 
that transition happen and how we need to make sure that we are strengthening the other men and women in our lives, that we're strengthening, that we're encouraging, that we're going into there and go, hey, I know you went through something. I know it's kind of tough. I know guys are doing something incredible in their life, but let's get to work. <laughs> and he goes in and kind of grabs them and takes them back. And they begin now this incredible series of missionary journeys. And Barnabas doesn't get, I don't think, enough credit for the role he played in this story. Mm. Like Ananias, those two guys, man, just, but Barnabas just played an incredible role in this story. It's really easy to overlook because of the flashiness of the story of Saul Paul. But man, if we can aspire to be a Barnabas, you kind of, he was like the original like kingmaker here. He, he was the guy that helped establish Paul in his new ministry and was supporting him. And I, I think that you could do a whole nother thing on a whole nother day. We could talk about Barnabas and this guy was, anyway, I was just reading through as we're all talking, just reading through the scriptures. And it just reminded me of, of this, this guy was just awesome. All right, so cool. After this, villains will go for the unsung heroes, right? Because definitely <laughs> Barnabas. And there's a lot. We gloss over a lot. There's like, man, that was pivotal. But yeah, and even Barnabas, like his name means son of encouragement or something mm-hmm. like that. So what mm-hmm. you're saying, like, hey, be a Barnabas, be an encourager, see where people are at. And because we're all going through hard times, but really help people come out of that and see what God's doing. I think that's a really good spot to to end unless Chris is going to just drop another bomber for good to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I'll, I'll wrap this one up. Man, Elmo, it was so great to have you on the show. I'm so glad that things worked out the way they did. Obviously, you know, we're talking about God working behind the scenes, what Saul and his life and moving and shaking and what was necessary to make him the man from Tarshish to go out to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. Uh, the same thing just seemed to happen here, not not maybe in the same light, but like just God moving to have this wonderful episode. This is going to be our first episode within the new year. So happy new year to everybody. And what a better way to start off the new year than to hear this story of how God can change someone's life and take it into a whole nother direction. And also don't forget about the guys who were there to help him along the way and the guys that were there to to encourage this man who was trying to figure out what was just happening in his life and bring him into a place to where he could be. I love the, the moniker that God gives Paul, my chosen instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and God played that instrument and, and it went out and made beautiful noise for him across, across the world during that time. So uh, what a cool, cool episode, man. I'm really glad we did this. Next one has to be in person, though. Whenever you're back up our way, uh, let's make it happen for sure. Yeah, let's, let's sit down and wherever mm-hmm. we're at in our season series or what we're doing, uh, you sit down with us and, and let's chat with it again because this was so much fun, man. I really enjoyed it. Is is there any way that we can uh, and the people listening can help you guys? Is there like a way we can send support your way for what you guys are doing? You know what? I I would encourage you. Uh, we're going to be probably by the time this airs, um, we're going to have some details rolling out for a new phase of our ministry. Um, check out elmoandcat.com. We've got some new stuff that's not public quite yet, but it's gonna be going out there on the going out on the um, on our website uh, and also on Facebook. You can follow our page, elmoandcat.com. Pray for our family. We just adopted a new baby girl. She just became part of our family. Uh, she was born on the 21st of October, uh, and then it was finalized the 18th of November. Um, and so we're just adjusting to new life, uh, life with a newborn in the house. And so pray for us there. And then just pray for our church uh, in Peru, Iglesia Mosaico, uh, and pay attention to what's the new stuff coming up. We've got some really exciting things that God's doing that we're preparing to, to invite you guys in to participate. And so 
man, I'm excited about what's coming up. It's going to be good. I was just going to point out Elmo and Cat with a K, right? That's right. Yeah. Elmo yeah. and Cat with a K.com. That's right. Yeah. And Elmo's with an E. Yep. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been great, guys. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I'm going to let you go, Elmo, and get to that. Uh, get to helping with that baby because I'm sure Cat needs some help at this point. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, uh, boys, so, have a good day. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm Yurda. And I'm Elmo. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Take care.